Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Ben Zizes, founder of Super Angel Fund. Super Angel is an early stage rolling fund investing in consumer, prop tech, and future of work companies. Some of the companies he's invested in are Quip, Caraway, and Arbor. In our conversation, we touch on what it's like investing in companies pre-product market fit, learning the mechanics of a rolling fund versus a traditional venture capital fund, and the opportunities that he sees in consumer. Without further ado, here's Ben. Ben, thank you so much for being here and coming on the show. How are you? Mike, such an honor. been listening to your uh, podcast for a bit, and uh, you just had such great guests, so I appreciate you inviting me on today. Excited to have a nice conversation. That's so kind of you to say. Well, let's get to it. What was your initial attraction to entrepreneurship? Let's, let's go back to the early days. Yeah, that's actually a, a great question. I guess my background growing up in New York, um, actually my... I guess, start in being an entrepreneur was uh, high school days. I had a, a DJ company with my twin brother and ran around town doing uh, Sweet 16 school dances and, you know, just had a blast doing all that. And just, uh, you know, it, it felt good to earn a few dollars and uh, provide an awesome value. And when I went to college, I found myself, you know, starting a, a college business, if you will. I don't need to get into the specifics, but um, it was a water business. So, um, you know, started selling coolers to students in off-campus apartments. But the truth is, you know, what attracted me was, you know, let's, let's be honest, right? The financial upside. And so um, if things work out, generally the owner of a business is someone who ends up you know, reaping those rewards. And so, you know, besides from that, it's the freedom, the flexibility, and really not wanting to be told what to do. So um, that's an answer for part of what attracted me. And also, I think, um, you know, if you have a lot of skill sets or, or think you have a lot of skill sets, I just think, um, you know, being a founder or entrepreneur allows you to sort of scratch all those itches, let, you know, use uh, all of your interests and just, you know, learn best practices across a lot of different roles versus maybe just doing one thing as an employee. You know, obviously, as a founder, you know, you just get to touch so many pieces of the business and it's, it's fulfilling. And I would also just mention, you know, watching the movie, The Social Network, probably, you uh, got a lot of people excited about, you know, really, you know, the founder role. And so I, I'd, I'd be lying if I said that didn't have some impact as well as I sort of, you know, graduated from college and started my first real um, uh, startup. Yeah. And let's talk about that. Your first real startup, retail MLS, right? So why did you start the company? What was, I guess, the insight that you learned? Talk a little bit about that journey. Yeah, absolutely. So one of my first jobs after graduating college back here in New York was doing retail store leasing. And so within a, a week on the job, I was hired to find 10 stores for Verizon Wireless in Manhattan. And it's a, it's a funny story, but you know, I, I ended up rollerblading the streets at night, writing down numbers from store signs, figuring out what's available. And then the next day I would collect it and you know, be able to sort of show my client, hey, there's a space on 42nd and 3rd. There's the location here. I mean, it was just incredibly obvious to me how inefficient this was to have to run around the streets. So I couldn't believe there wasn't an online platform, just like for you know Zillow or StreetEasy in New York, to search and advertise vacant retail space. And so that came the idea for you know retail MLS, which uh, I went through the whole founder journey, and I guess. When you know, had a lot of success in some respects, but at the end of the day, after four years, the business just uh, didn't work out, and that was my founder journey. And certainly, uh, I'd like to say, you know, I made every mistake in the book, but we know that uh, it's always more ahead in the road. So, after you exited from the company four years later, why did you decide that you maybe wanted to switch gears and dabble into investing? I wish I could say it was a 
profitable exit. But the truth is, you know, after uh, putting in the last dollars myself and running around trying to raise a Series A round of funding, um, you know, you know, again, I, I raised about $2 million from maybe 50 investors spanning angel seed funds. And I just couldn't get a venture fund to really write us that next check. For the Series A part, what was the biggest reason why investors passed? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so a few things. One is it was a software business and I'm a you know, non-technical founder and I, I had a, a CTO, but uh, you know, for a, a bunch of reasons, he wasn't maybe as invested as I was. So, you know, a single founder business just statistically, you know, generally has a harder time at success, but we went through $2 million and we didn't have much revenue to show for it. So investors felt it was very binary at that point, uh, you know, a lot of risk on the table. And there were a few, I guess, comps, if you will, of other businesses in or around our space that had success in the area of $800 million exits. And you know, the truth is I pitched hundreds of VCs in New York and Silicon Valley. And a lot of them literally said to me like, hey, we, we got to shoot for the moon. And, you know, we think you could be worth a $500 million uh, valuation, but we got to shoot for multi-billion each time out the gate. So just a few of those reasons. But I will say one of my biggest mistakes, which a lot of founders find helpful to hear, is I overbuilt the product. And I, I just... You know, I would collect feedback from customers and they would ask me to create features and I'd run back to my product team and my engineers and I'd ask them to build all these features. And it really, it made me realize you just got to find one thing great, you know, do it great and focus, 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 focus. So that was definitely a big reason that, that it didn't work out. And what sort of led me into the next phase of my career in some respects, where I think you were going as far as, uh, you know, how did I sort of then pivot, you know, from that failed founder experience, if you will, into being becoming an investor. And I would say definitely, especially now as a full-time angel fund manager, I think my path is a little unique in that it wasn't like I went to business school or worked at a venture fund as a principal or analyst. You know, I had this founder journey. And at the time, it's a, it's a cliche where I often say like, you know, uh, one door was closing and a window opened. So I had all this experience fundraising, writing pitch decks, you know, operating a business. Granted, it wasn't a successful outcome, but I had learned so much. And in particular, I developed incredible relationships with angel investors and venture funds. And at the time I was shut down in 2014, I was an early customer of a company I'm sure you and most of our listeners are very familiar with, you know, Dollar Shave Club. So I was an early customer, huge fan obviously unrelated to the prop tech business I was building. But as a founder, you're very often just paying attention to the early stage landscape and, you know, the other businesses that are performing and, you know, innovating and around you. And so having been a, you know, a fan and obviously their video was a huge, uh, amazing success that you can't forget, but I ended up Basically, very lucky. I, I overheard a group of strangers talking about a toothbrush subscription company while I was at a, a party. And um, it's, it just immediately resonated with me. And I, I just, my ears perked up. I, I asked these, these strangers to introduce me to the founder of, of this toothbrush company. And um, in January of 2014, two exceptional young men came into my office with a beautiful prototype of a of a toothbrush. And, um, you know, they basically just outlined the vision and it immediately stuck. And I, I asked to become their first investor and help them with those very early, you know, efforts of getting a business off the ground. Right. And what it takes is, you know, making a beautiful pitch deck and introducing them to great investors. And it, that happened to be what the company became Quip, uh, the toothbrush oral care brand. And that was my first angel investment. And really what kicked off you know, what became like, you know, the next five, seven years of, you know, digging into angel investing. That's awesome. And such a cool story about how you met the founders of Quip. That's really cool. When it comes to investing in physical products, you know, native brands, what are some of the challenges? Because I'd imagine that building like a physical product, it might be a bit easier than building like a software business, especially if there's no like IP. But what are some of the challenges when you look for on the investment side when you're looking at some of these companies? So I think we're now 2021. Going back seven years, 
you know, when Quip and Dollar Shave Club and maybe Harry's and were all these consumer product companies were just, you know, those were, those were innovations in and of themselves, just creating a beautifully designed everyday item that, you know, you, you would otherwise purchase in a, a pharmacy or a supermarket, right? I mean, it's no longer enough, right? There's just every space, every category for the most part has been disrupted and has its version of Quip or Casper or away luggage. So I'll just say that the, the competition today is just exponential over what it was just a few years ago. But I will also say that, you know, competition is, is often a good thing. It really just validates the viability, you know, the fact that there is a market opportunity worth pursuing. And so, you know, one business I invested in, uh, a cookware brand called Caraway, at the time, there were a half dozen cookware D2C companies out there. But I'll tell you what sort of stood out is the founder. And, you know, if you have a founder at the end of the day that is so fundamentally sound and passionate and driven, ambitious, um, capable, you know, I think they can overcome any challenge. Although just to sort of go back to your question, you can't just be a beautifully designed product sold as a subscription online, right? So you do need some IP and there are consumer products with IP. I'll give you an example of a company called Cadence. Have you heard of this one, Mike? I feel like I have, but I actually don't know what they do. Yeah, so Cadence is a basically a portable travel capsule um, that allows you to put all of your personal care creams and uh, ointments and um, body wash and shampoo. And it's just the whole brand is focused on sustainability instead of buying plastic. You know, all this stuff comes in plastic containers. That's so, so um, Cadence just created just an extraordinary physical product that has patents and is unlike anything on the market. So there certainly are, that does exist, but it, it's far few in between. But I think you can't just acquire customers uh, today the way you used to, given the customer acquisition costs. So you do need to be insanely creative to reach your audience, right? And figure out that a distribution advantage and that could very well mean something like a celebrity uh, co-founder or just finding you know, undervalued real estate online where you can you know, basically uh, make sure that you're getting those customers for, for a, a cost that is, is fundamentally sound and you have positive unit economics, right? I mean, you can't sell something for a dollar that uh, costs you a dollar for 80 cents, right? You need need to make money on the first purchase with a consumer product company. So that's one challenge that I think, you know, founders have to figure out. How do you balance? And I know, I know that every investors are going to say all three are important, but how do you think about founder product and market? And is there one of the three that maybe you over index on or, or think more thoughtfully through? Yep. Um, absolutely. So, let me just also add just the, to the last, just to finish the, the last question regarding challenges, the, a note that I feel like is important that I want to, you know, just knowing your numbers cold and keeping your expenses down. And so just given how hard it is to capture attention and audience, I just think you need to find every possible margin and cost savings in your physical product, right? You know, with your costs, with your cogs, with your supply chain, your shipping, always just trying to find a way without sacrificing, you know, quality and maintaining that impeccable, you know, design and physical product uh, quality across all of your brand touch points. So, but to, to move on to the next thing with respect to, you know, to me, it, it falls under the key selection criteria, right? So the three areas you pointed out is sort of like the founders and I go founders, market, and then product. But to drill into those three, the number one selection criteria is the founders and the team, period, full stop. So it's gotta be, for me, I have a focus of consumer products, software that supports, right, e-commerce infrastructure and then real estate and, and you know, future of work. But assuming it's in an area where I specialize and I focus, the founder is, it's everything because oftentimes I'm investing free product, free revenue. Right. And so for me, I look for the following things in my founders. I look for unwavering ambition to build a multi billion dollar company. I then look for someone who has relentless pursuit of perfection and product obsessed, as well as 
the ability to learn new things and absorb information fast. So anyone who's got those traits is going to be resourceful and resilient. But I think the hardest thing is really figuring out, is this someone who has, you know, what it takes to do the impossible, right? And I, and I ask very personal questions at times to really get to that core of, you know, what motivates you and, and where does that motivation come from? And I really like to hear, you know, a founder response to that because it gives me a sense of, uh, you know, is this, is this deeply rooted or is this maybe, I guess, more of a entrepreneur than an entrepreneur? Yeah. And also when you invest, it's normally like, you know, a five to 10 year relationship that you're going through, right? And that you're part of the company. And so you want to really ask these questions and really get deep because you don't want to invest in a company and then the founder bails after a year, right? And so you really have to understand that this is a deep problem for them, something, a product that maybe they couldn't find online, or even if it's not for them, it's something that they care really deeply about on some level. Also, that makes sense in terms of founder that like they're number one, since you also invest at day zero. Let's like unpack that a little bit. On day zero, does that mean you've ever invested in maybe like pre-product physical good companies, or does everything have to have a product associated with them in the beginning? Yeah. I mean, the best example in my circumstance are, you know, there's three companies in my portfolio, Quip being the first, Caraway being the second, and my latest, Arbor, which just launched last week. Um, the website is growarbor.com, and they are a all-natural lawn, garden, and plant care brand. These are three companies where my investment was very first checked into the business in all three cases before the company was named. You know, these were basically ideas, you know, with a pitch deck, um, founders that have spent pretty a good amount of time before they even approached me, just sort of either working in, in, in or around the business. But when I, when I say day zero, yeah, this is pre-product, pre-revenue, um, and pre-name in those cases. When you're looking at what to invest in, do you take a more like thematic approach in, hey, this category I think could get disrupted. Let me try to find everything that's going on that's innovative in this space. Or do you take a more at the approach of, let me actually just meet entrepreneurs that are from a variety of spaces and really actually have them tell me what the actual insight is, that actually what the innovation is going to be, if that kind of makes sense. I'd like to have you know, a bet in any major multi-billion dollar market, if that makes sense. So, so a company I'm pretty much uh, you know, unannounced but recently invested in is going to be you know, a digitally native home improvement brand for do-it-yourself people who, who want to basically do projects at home that involve screwdrivers and hammers and you know, nails and, and hanging things and uh, you know, effectively like a, a modern day Home Depot, if you will, right? I mean, there has, like to me, you're talking about home improvement category, which is a, I don't know, over, you know, multi-billion dollar space that if you just consider, have you seen, you know, to me, is there a brand that you can think off the top of your head that really, you know, speaks to the millennial or Gen Z audience in that space. Uh, now, I've seen a few that are now about to start to, you know, come into the market. But to me, massive category. I want to bet in that space. And so generally, you know, it's interesting how this happens. I mean, when you start to see one more pop up. And so for me, I'm, gonna, I'm looking for the best founder um, with the best vision and mission who's primed to win and take market share from the incumbents in that space. This reminds me of a conversation I had last week with Ariel, founder of uh, Parachute. And, you know, why she founded the company is because when it came to looking at bedding and sheets, she found that there was no real brand in the space. So it was almost looking at and understanding the power of brand and the power of that behavior, of uh, that shopping behavior from a consumer. And that's what actually led her to found Parachute. And I think that, that, I mean, that's something similar, right? You look at major categories and you think, is there a brand that actually speaks to you or comes top of mind? If the answer is no, then in a funny way, as we just described how inefficiency means opportunity, also there not being a brand in the space means that there could be an opportunity, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and listen, there, not every category, you know, really lends itself to having a digitally native brand. So, um, 
you just got to be careful. But I think uh, going back to what we talked about earlier, you know, having some distribution advantage with a, you know, with a celebrity or influencer as a co-founder, you know, you just, you got to exploit every competitive advantage you can. And, and another business that I will point to, to that piece is, is Judy, right? Which is the emergency preparedness company where I was fortunate to invest pre-launch, um, which, you know, if they happened to launch a, a month or two before the global pandemic, and I was had a Judy kit in my home and one, one of the first people walking around with a N95 mask, thanks to Judy. But that team is experienced and they happen to have, you know, really deep celebrity relationships. And, you know, you can't quantify the value of that to be able to get, you know, influencers to post about the product pretty much without necessarily even paying them. I mean, that's like, like it's just a dream. You can't, that's, you know, arguably they've earned tens of millions of dollars of uh, media just without any expense. And so that's something I think, you know, you really need to have that sort of advantage uh, to win. But one other thing, Mike, is design can be, you know, it, depending on brand. I mean, I, I just, I'm thinking about the direct to consumer alcohol company house. And, you know, it's just, the design is so, I mean, every touch point of that brand is just, it's top of the class. And so they do have competitive advantages around their distribution and the vertical integration because they actually make the product, fulfill it, ship it, handle the entire sort of supply chain and marketing piece. So there, there are other advantages, but I will stress often, like to me, one way I can filter, I see hundreds of deals and decks every month. And one simple way for me to move, you know, decide if I'm going to take a call with a founder versus just unfortunately sort of move on is if the pitch deck that I get looks like crap, right? How am I going to get confidence that that is a brand and a founder that is going to build a product that's going to resonate with the customer, right? I just, I really stress design across every touch point. And it starts, especially when you're fundraising, you're, it starts with your pitch deck because that is the, you know, that's the common application, if you will. That's the standard piece of material that you go around with. And so that to me has been a big driver of why I'll even jump on the phone with a founder, you know, being able to sort of look at hundreds of decks and identifying these are in the top 1% of the best design. That's, that's enough for me to, to look into it further. You know, just to be specific, when we're talking about design, it's obviously flesh, you know, fleshed out across the deck, but then it it spreads into all touch points of the product itself, the packaging, the unboxing, the digital photography, you know, the content collateral and all the media. I mean, some of the brands in my portfolio, I mean, you will see a common theme, which is arguably the best design consumer product companies you'll ever find. And you can really tell when someone has attention to detail because some of these products, the subtleties, the, the, the smallest you know, components of these products are so thoughtfully considered and not just a product, but you know, oftentimes these, these consumer product companies will come with a booklet that gives you a guide on how to use it or how to swap out the batteries for a refill or how to clean your pots and pans and every single word and image and, um, you know, has been painstakingly considered. And to me, you know, you can sort of pull together all these signals during an interaction with a founder and see if this is someone who has that, going back to what I said about the founders, that, you know, pursuit of perfection and product obsessed. Yeah, no, those are um, all really great points. I also wanted to talk a little bit about marketing and, and like organic versus paid. And obviously you don't have those um, arbitrage opportunities that you did in the early 2010s and the late 2000s. And now I hear a lot of investors talk about how they want to invest in community-driven brands and brands that are building community. But I almost feel like community has become like a bit of like a buzzword, to be honest with you, that it's kind of just, everyone just talks about it, but what does it truly mean? So I wanted to ask you, investing in a community-driven brand, what does that actually mean to you? I totally agree with you. I think founders have had to, given the, the pushback that VCs have sort of uh, made with respect to consumer product companies, so many venture funds have just said, you know, we're out on all CPG because we're not, you know, we can't get the venture scale returns. We've lost that arbitrage with, you know, 
media on Facebook and Google, like basically our dollars, our investment dollars are just going right into Facebook and Google. And so they've decided to sort of hold off on making investments. I think that's a lazy approach. I think extremely lazy. I think the founders maybe have had to sort of pivot their marketing of their consumer product company to include, okay, we're going to be more than just a consumer product. We're going to have this community that's going to drive our sales and ultimately give a, a higher affinity to purchase. So I, I think it is obviously becoming like a, you know, a tactic to fundraise in some sense. And yeah, community is critical. What does it mean to me? It just means, you know, building a deep, authentic relationship with your customer, right? And generally these brands today, A, it's better. It happens to be great for, you know, just the world, but there, there's certainly you do need to meet the customer where they are. And that means having a product that's, you know, environmentally friendly, sustainable, you know, and so I think community often just means a product that's resonating and better for you, better for the planet and establishing a connection beyond the purchase of the transaction. But, you know, so to me though, it was always a, a requirement. I just think, uh, you know, it's a word that's being used to sort of get investors excited, but I think it's important. But like, to me, I'm still investing in consumer product companies very actively. And like I mentioned, um, you know, this new home improvement brand, an art supply company called Happy Medium, which I'm excited about and launching very soon. And certainly, you know, that's a business that lends itself. It just, it's honestly, it's just now that I'm thinking it's a, it's another word for content, right? And so just making sure that you're engaging your audience content. So let's talk a little bit about a rolling, I, obviously you have a rolling fund, let's, let, let's kind of dig in more about that. And what are some of the differences between a rolling fund versus a traditional venture capital fund? So yeah, I'll just sort of give you a little bit of a lead up on how I ended up. And just to go back to that original story, my first angel investment was uh, seven years ago, small check. I, I immediately just sort of fell in love with the space and you know, being in a supportive investing role versus the operating role. And I just threw myself into the industry, consuming everything I could. And if this podcast were around years ago, this certainly would have been one of the first ones that I uh, would listen to, but really tried to just learn from the best and uh, started to make other angel investments, small amounts, and really even following other people's syndicates as a way to you know, diversify and put a small money in and learn and figure out how other people analyze and source deals. And I really spent the last seven years just as a private angel investor, but I started to create syndicates to allow, I mean, it really served a few, really three great purposes. So it would allow my network to invest alongside me. It would allow me to help companies raise money and it would allow me to earn, you know, a piece of the carry on profits that I effectively delivered to these investors. And so I raised, you know, in total, I invested about $4 million on behalf of 200 investors, really over the last few years. And so before I started a fund, I had this track record of 32 angel investments. And, um, you know, at least from on paper, I've had, you know, over a 6x multiple on that. And today, the 4 million is worth over 20 million. And so there's also a lot more upside ahead. But the truth is, angel investing is not income producing, and you got to wait five or ten years to earn, you know, the big, the big bang successful uh, exit. So I was actually working in a traditional sort of real estate job during the last seven years, and I decided a year ago to, you know, I was burnt out, and I, my wife and I had a baby. COVID hit. We all, you know. COVID accelerated so many things and I decided to, you know, do what I love, not between nine to five instead of between five to nine, right? Really give the prime hours of the day, you know, for what I felt like I was good at and what I love doing. And so about six months ago, I decided to create a fund and be able to support myself doing what I love. And the truth is, you know, if not for AngelList, you know, I, I probably would have just done what everyone does. But, the, you know, being a first-time emerging fund manager, I had a, a real luxury of not being, you know, beholden to a legacy model. And I'm constantly looking to, you know, differentiate. And so when I learned of rolling funds, I think it was, a, you know, a year and a half ago, immediately I jumped on the phone with AngelList to learn more. 
applied to be in their early access program. And when the time came, it wasn't even a question. Um, I wanted to try this new model and certainly a lot of, you know, it created questions from investors and, and we'll go through sort of the differences between a rolling fund and a traditional fund. But yeah, so January 1st launched my fund, superangel.fund. And, you know, it's, it's certainly, it's a, like you said, it's a rolling fund and, you know, I'm happy to sort of go through what makes a rolling fund different than a traditional fund. If you feel like that would be helpful. Yeah. Let's start there. What's some of the differences between a rolling fund versus traditional venture capital fund? And then we'll kind of piece it together. Yeah. So first is, you know, Naval, who's the founder, obviously, of Angelist, you know, likes to say that a rolling fund has every feature that a traditional fund has and then some. And so let's go through it. So one of the most unique aspects of a rolling fund is the fact that you can publicly fundraise and advertise that you have a fund. So it's a, an exemption within the code of uh, you know, the SEC where there's some requirements that you need to do on the administrative side, such as verify that the investors who join are accredited. But by doing that extra check, you're allowed to advertise your fund through email, LinkedIn, social media, Twitter, um, I mean, I'm pretty sure I can get a billboard on the side of the highway that says invest in my fund. Uh, and I might even do that at some point. I just have to figure out where to do that, right? Like what's the, the best market? Maybe, uh, I don't know, we'll find like the, the highest earning zip codes in the country and just, um, you know, flood them with uh, outdoor out of home media. So publicly fundraising, it's, it creates a few different dynamics. So one is that People who you wouldn't otherwise know can discover you and become an investor in the fund. They could also, you know, founders that you might not have known that you have a fund can find you. But also, I think something that people don't realize is you're able to build your brand in public such that, you know, ultimately, you know, fund managers generally like over time want to get capital from deeper pockets, institutional investors. And so, I can pretty much just, you know, keep everyone in the universe updated through email blasts, LinkedIn posts, Twitter, as far as each, all the investments I'm making and how I'm performing without necessarily having a previously existing relationship. So the hope is that, you know, I'll be able to sort of, at some point, um, prove myself and be able to capture some institutional investors. And that's starting to happen even this early. Um, so that's the first thing is the public solicitation and fundraising piece. The second thing is really important, which is that unlike a traditional fund where an investor needs to make a pretty large upfront commitment all at once, you know, a fund can often take 18 months to raise. And during that raising period, you know, it's distracting to be investing also because you don't really have the money yet. You do a first close. So you, you basically need to disappear, focus on investing for a year and a half. You're missing all these investment opportunities, right? And, and so the, the rolling fund piece is always open and you can simultaneously be investing and deploying immediately. Each quarter is its own fund and investors can you know, adjust their investment over the course of each quarter, as long as they're at the minimum. And so I think that's a big piece, which is it's always open and people's financial situations are constantly changing. And so the truth is the fact that it's always open is allows you to capture potential investors at any point over the course of time. So let's say you have, you know, a unique circumstance and financial windfall, you know, I'm not going to say to you, Mike, my fund is closed. I just, you know, it's no longer open. Like, no matter whenever it is you want to join, it's always open and you would start participating in the current quarter moving forward. So I think that's incredible. And like I said, the, the publicly solicitation and always uh, available to be to take investments, you're investing and you're raising. I think that creates an amazing um, you know, benefit. But the other pieces that AngelList itself, you know, handles all of the administration. And so Imagine, you know, a fund in the past might need a partner strictly dedicated to finance, legal, and operations. But today, I get all of those services from AngelList. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Angelus is obviously taking out a lot of the barrier to entry and a lot of the friction in order for someone to do this, which is amazing. And it's been really terrific. Is it tough because, as you say, each quarter is its own fund? So instead of having like fund one, fund two, fund three, which is, you know, spread over five, seven years or, or 10 years, um, each of those funds, because I'd imagine that some quarters like perform like some of the investments made in one quarter might perform better than the other quarter. Have you had a hard time convincing investors to kind of repeat and actually keep investing quarter over quarter? Or has that been pretty seamless? Once they're in, they're really excited and motivated and kind of keep giving you money. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point around portfolio construction. And there's there's some good materials and other podcasts that um, Angelist has explained sort of, you know, some of the thoughts around that. But I'll just say that a few things. So um, in my fund, it's a four quarter um, commitment period, which I think, you know, it's, it's a lower dollar amount than a traditional fund by, you know, by far. It's a 10,000 per quarter minimum and a four quarter commitment. And part of that is having some consistency of capital, right? And, and a line of sight into how much capital you'll be able to invest over the course of a year. But I do think it's, for me, I like to have, you know, within each quarter, as you said, each quarter is its own fund, period, and, you know, open and closed. And so I do like to have a mix within a quarter of the different sort of areas that I focus. So consumer product companies, so physical products, right? Um, but as along with a mix of software businesses that have, you know, in some ways, higher potential for being multi-billion dollar exits. And certainly my focus is e-commerce infrastructure. So I'm, I'm investing in a lot of software businesses that support the high growth e-commerce brands that are in my portfolio. Um, and the other area being that I focus is real estate and property tech, given my founder experience and operational experience. And then the other bucket that is somewhat new that I've leaned into is you know, future of work, right? And a lot of people, you might say, what does that mean? And, I, and I've just described it as, you know, COVID changed everything. And so the amount of problems that have been created and the founders that are attacking the changed world we live in that resulted from COVID, uh, there's too many smart, impressive founders that are building companies that are, you know, solving problems that COVID created or just solve, you know, making things better based on the new way of living and working. And so that's, to me, I don't know how you could be an investor today and not invest in, you know, the future of work, if you will. But I like to have a mix of each of the areas that I focus. And I am extremely thoughtful about, you know, putting in the right amount of capital into these deals. I also tend to write smaller checks into pre-seed, pre-revenue companies and a little bit larger checks into the more established, uh, later stage, post-revenue businesses. And my hope is about five to 10 companies in each quarter. And uh, yeah, the first quarter, I invested in 10 companies and uh, approximately 50,000 in each. And uh, the check size will increase as the fund grows. And so I certainly do look at each quarter it, you know, as its own fund to, to give it, you know, a bit of, you know, diversity across industry, stage, and, and whatnot. When you think about those three buckets of consumer products, prop tech, and uh, future of work, do you ever have a design at the beginning of the quarter when you're going to make um, investments that, okay, I want to do 33, 33, 33 across the board, or you want to do more heavy maybe on one particular part? Because as well, just thinking about, I know this is very general here, but thinking about also venture returns. Uh, typically like CPG businesses, they're not gonna return as much as like a software business, right? And so how does all of these kind of parts of the decision or just weigh into your decision-making overall? So I would say that it's an evolving thesis, but I do have more unique deal flow in some respects in the areas that I've sort of been known for in the past. That does probably put the consumer products a little bit higher weight in, in the portfolio today, but I would say I'm planting seeds today to move more towards some software businesses. But I do think if you're building a consumer product company properly, you'll require significantly less capital in some respects than, and because I, I mean, I think 
to a fault, you could look at some companies, and I, I hate to call call out Casper, but yeah, they're worth 300 million, but they've raised 300 million. So to me, like, sure, maybe the first few investors made money, but it's it's not a successful venture back business the way you would hope that it's an incredible brand. I have tremendous respect for the people involved there, but I think a lot of businesses get overcapitalized. And I think I really have seen some patterns that I lean into with respect to capital efficiency. And so if you're properly funded and not overfunded, you, you do have really meaningful potential for venture outcomes and consumer. And I also think pretty soon there's going to be another potential outcome for these businesses beyond just an IPO, a SPAC, or you know, an M&A. And, and I'm, I'm specifically talking about Carta and Carta X, as well as Angelus Transfers, which I think you know, maybe not everyone is keeping up with what's about to happen, but I see a future where my fund will invest in a pre-seed round and exit at the Series A or Series B or through a platform like Carta X, which is kind of like a stock market for private companies. And so, but I certainly understand what you're saying and, and I appreciate that you do have the scalability of software and certainly I, I like to make sure that I have you know a number of those investments in each quarter. What's one thing you would change about venture capital? First off, I want to say venture capital, I'm, I'm only maybe five months into being full-time in this space, but I really do love the industry. And I think that um, it is unique having been in other businesses with real estate. And even I spent a little time in marketing. I just think it's, it is an awesome industry. There's great camaraderie, quality of people, you know, working hard, looking to do positive things in the world. So there's so many things I love about it, but I I would say regarding what could be changed, it's not a new idea, but there certainly needs to be more funding to underestimated founders. Right. And really, it's unfortunate, but investors are in some ways representative of the general population. And I think I think to a fault, most are followers and lack conviction without third party validation. And so I think, you know, people, you know, being a day zero investor, it's a very unique thing. And, and I really appreciate others who are willing to make bets on founders that are overlooked, underestimated uh, underrepresented, but I do believe that we're moving in the right direction with that. And, um, I think there's definitely a lot of light at the end of the tunnel. I certainly agree with you. We've certainly talked about it quite a bit on this show about the lack of diversity in venture capital and the lack of diversity in number of founders that actually get funded. But I think is also a very interesting point that you point out in terms of like having conviction it's funny because i feel like a lot of investors say you know we're contrarian we only believe if someone else passed that doesn't affect us but you know what i found at least with founders is like there's certainly a lot of gossip that goes on behind the scenes whenever you talk to an investor and then asking other people's advice of what you think about this and what you think about this and kind of this almost like group think even though you're in different funds of what you think about what actually happens so i do think that unfortunately like that could certainly have like a pretty negative effect one quote i have in my pitch deck and i invite all the listeners the other benefit of the rolling fund is again that i can share this widely, but my deck is available at superangeldeck.com and we can post it in the show notes, but I'm just going to call out a quote that's on topic, which is from Scott Belsky, who said, when you make an investment based on who else is investing, you're regressing to the mean and internal conviction trumps external consensus. And so it's just a, you know, follow your gut. This early stage investing is more of an art than a science. You know, it's just, I'd love to see other investors, you know, jump into these companies with me at that very early stage, because you better be sure they're jump onto the business once it launches, you know, oftentimes that ship has sailed. And so I think, um, you know, people need to like, we're, we're in a high risk, high reward business, and you get that risk by holding hard to your conviction and putting your money where your mouth is and taking a chance on some of these founders before they've proven themselves. You do have the opportunity to, especially now because everyone has money and you do need to get into these companies early to have a seat at the table later, right? And so to me, 
it's not as risky as it used to be. I also don't think we'll, we'll have as many zeros or tens. I think there's going to be a lot of room for those middle outcomes, specifically leveraging the, the platforms like Carta X and, and AngelList, where you can sort of you know sell your shares uh, earlier than waiting for a 10-year exit. But I think, especially if you do get in early, you're looking for that unique um, advantage and you can follow on more with your winners later. But I often find, you know, I'm helping the founders recruit other investors for the earliest deals. And to me, being able to put, you know, to liken it to poker, a small chip on the table before you see all your cards just gives you the ability to double down and you're at least you're in the hand. And it's, it's uh, really gives you that unfair advantage later on because you've been able to watch that business over a year and see them, it's, it becomes so much less risky and you can go much deeper with a bigger check later on. And so I think following on your winners is something I'll be doing for sure in my fund. And I would also say that, you know, investors that are price sensitive, I just think, you know, like you said, it's an outlier business. And so whether you're investing at a 10, 12, $15 million cap valuation, uh, at the end of the day, is not going to have a meaningfully, you know, difference uh, to your returns if that business is successful. And if it's not, which most, you know, theoretically won't be, it's not. And so that's sort of a little thought on that. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Yeah. So I would say one book that I think I'll use the same book maybe for both, which is, um, you know, it's called The Ultra Marathon Man by Dean Karnazes. And this guy runs a hundred mile races. Like to me, that's literally the impossible. And so I'll say that he inspired me to run a marathon, which is 26.2 miles. But when you're reading about someone who's running a hundred miles, how could, you know, you're doing a quarter of that. So I think the theme on that is simply that even if, you know, you feel like there's something that's truly impossible. Um, if you set your mind to something, it can be done. And so I think that's what being a successful founder is all about. And that's a book that I would, you know, has personal and professional themes to. Love it. Love it. No one's mentioned that book yet. So you're very original here, Ben. We'll add that to the book list. That'll be great. Um, Ultra Marathon Man sounds really interesting. What is the best piece of advice that you've received? So... That is a loaded question because I feel like if you're on Twitter, all you're doing is getting good advice from uh, just a million places. But no, I've been very fortunate. I have some mentors, some I've met you know, in real life and some I've just been following uh, behind the scenes in the industry. And I think just, I guess, two things stand out to me. One is, um, especially a lot of people in this business, you know, this is, there are some extremely uh, wealthy people that have just, you know, earned money for generations. And I think no matter how successful you are, I think it's just maintaining humility is, is a critical thing. So I would just say from an advice standpoint, just maintaining humility, no, no matter how successful you become is a key learning. And also the other is not to underestimate anyone, right? A great deal can come from anywhere. So I intentionally make myself as accessible as possible across, you know, I, I can't stand it when a venture capitalist, even I saw the other day put on their LinkedIn, like, we don't accept more intros. If we don't know you, fill out the form. Like, I put my email everywhere. First name, last name at Gmail, ben.zices at gmail.com, at bzices on Twitter. And I welcome cold emails all day long. Certainly, I, I can no longer respond to everyone, but certainly I read everyone. I'm just, uh, you know, I just think never underestimate anyone. So those are some pieces of advice. I love that because I've, I've had on investors here before that said, yeah, like, just as you said, like, I don't accept anything cold. If you don't have a way to get into my network, then, you know, because my network's pretty big or what have you, then you know, you need to find a way if you want to get to me um, or you should be able to get to me. I think we should send those investors packing and they should find another business to be in. It's, it's, it's a terribly rude approach. And if you're an LP in a fund where the investor is not open to hearing where a great deal is going to come from, I, I don't know how you can sort of feel good about that. So 
To me, I love sending cold emails because listen, not everyone has a deep network. And so if, if you write a thoughtful, um, well-researched, you write to someone um, you know, with something that is relevant to them, why does it matter if it came through someone you know? I mean, it just feels like a total ridiculous filter system that, uh, you know, at least for me, I'm not interested in that kind of uh, process. I totally 100% agree with you. I mean, I actually love writing cold emails. It's one of my favorite things to do. I think it's, I think it's awesome. My final question for you is what's one piece of advice that you have for consumer founders? So I would say, you know, the area that I specialize in is fundraising. And so whether I was raising money for my own startup or some real estate properties that I was investing in early in my career and then helping other founders um, with their fundraising process, uh, it's just an area that I'm often asked. So within that context, I think founders, whether they're consumer focused or B2B or any category, I think they often, they need to treat their fundraise the same way they would the most important parts of their business. And so going back to what I said earlier about creating an impeccable pitch deck, because people's attention span is maybe nine seconds long, if you're lucky. And so design is just an area where you, you know, visually stimulate someone with a beautiful deck that will bring them in to further read about your business, right? You want to get engagement. Engagement is critical. The worst thing you can have is a ghost. No one responds to your emails. And I think if you send a beautifully designed, thoughtful, succinct deck to someone during fundraise, um, you're giving yourself the best chance of success. And so I think also targeting your list of investors and, um, you know, listen, there's no shortcuts. So the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I'll pretty much leave it at that. Awesome. Cool, man. Cool. Ben, this has been such a great chat. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Super thankful you had me today and um, really appreciate you giving me the time to share some of my story and hope this was uh, helpful to all your listeners. It certainly was helpful to me. I'm sure it was helpful for anyone listening. And don't worry, we're going to promote the crap out of Super Angel Fund for anyone that's a accredited investor that is looking to um, make investments. Ben is amazing. The deals he's in, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. And he's a great guy. I reached out cold to him and we did this. So he's certainly is very, very open arms to founders and just other people. And so certainly, certainly, certainly check out Super Angel Fund. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Ben. I hope you all enjoyed it. Feel free to head over to superangel.vc to learn more info. And you can follow him on Twitter at bzizes. That's B-Z-I-S-E-S. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb. And also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>